That's a clown question, bro. Hey, what's up on you? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. I am your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing well. We got proposals. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's confirmed anything, but we got proposals. Yeah, we have, uh, we have some, some words written down on paper, maybe some <laughs> agreements on, uh, on whether, whether there will be baseball in 2020. It's a big, it's obviously, it's a big question mark at this point. But uh, the owners came up with a came up with a idea. They got to pitch it to the players' union, and if they can agree on things, we're good. Uh, it's not that easy, unfortunately. There are going to be kinks here and there, regardless. Uh, but if they can come to an agreement, there's going to be baseball. Yeah, it is a weird thing um, because players are probably not going to be able to get paid as much because um, there's no there's uh, no one in the crowd, so there's no revenue off of, you know, ballpark stuff, which is where they get a lot of their revenue. It's just going right. to be based off of TV, TV stuff, deals. advertising on TV. So it kind of takes out a large thing. But, you know, I'm not a numbers guy. I have, I have no idea how all that gets sorted out. I'm just hoping it does get sorted out uh, in the near future. That's right. So we're probably going to get information on when a possible season will start um, in the next week. And, uh, you know, we'll be happy, happy to report <clears throat> how we feel about things next week. But as of now, uh, nothing really going on. So we will continue with our history little series. Today we're, we're doing an all Giants episode. We're doing Willie Mays and we're doing the 2000. 14 Giants, two of my favorite, um, two of my favorite players and teams, probably my favorite combination for yeah, an episode. We've done. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of fun ones over this time, but this one especially, you got the same team represented twice. You have arguably the best player of all time, and you have a team that was carried by one man. Yeah, carried by one man and just not really dominant. They were an old team too. I mean, their, their pitching staff, their av the average age of their pitching staff was the oldest in the MLB by 1.6 years. So, uh, yeah, the average age of their pitchers were, was 31.7. And yeah, that's definitely something we'll get into, into the second half of the episode. Um, if you just want to listen to the 2014 Giants portion of the episode, I will leave I'll leave a timestamp in the uh, YouTube description or the um, or the episode description on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'll just leave that in there because I know some people will probably only want to listen to one part of the episode. We just like to do things in one night, one episode. Maybe make some references uh, in you know the first and second half of the episode. But yeah, we got Willie Mays, who you know, probably the greatest center fielder of all time. I would, and so far, because, and yeah, we're going to get into how it compares to players of today, but it starts out with him being born and raised in Alabama. 
Um, unfortunately for Willie Mays, his mother uh, did die young, died giving birth to her 11th child. But, uh, you know, he was able to grow up with his father. Father was able to, you know, make enough income for him to be raised, you know, relatively com uh, comfortably for, uh, for a guy who was growing up kind of post-depression, recovering from the depression. And there's actually stories of Willie Mays taking his first steps at the age of six months, uh, going after a baseball that was on a chair. It was, you know, baseball was sitting on a chair. He was trying to chase it and uh, took his first steps at the age of six months. Uh, I think, I think normal is like, and about that's when they knew. Yeah. Normal is about 11 months. So yeah. he I definitely of, was not taking steps at six months. Yeah. He, uh, he cut that time and in, in half pretty much. He's got the speed running world record. Yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think in his age class, I think he wins in the, in the world. Um, there, there are stories of that, uh, you know, whether you believe it or not, I, I think it might be true. I think it might be true. I see why not. And yeah, baseball was a huge influence in his life from very early on. His father and also his grandfather were both semi-professional baseball players, um, in the state of Alabama. And, uh, that influence rubbed off on him. He was just an athletic superstar no matter what, no matter what sport. He went to Fairfield Industrial High School. He was the star quarterback. And also in basketball, he averaged 20 points per game uh, in that sport, probably the best player on both teams. And actually, he's self-proclaimed a better football player than he is a baseball player. So, and, uh, you know, he didn't want to test the football market because it was you know, the 40s and 50s, having a black quarterback, unfortunately, at the time, was just not something that was going to happen at the time, unfortunately. So he decided to uh, go after the baseball dream, which definitely a good choice on his part. And in high school, uh, his high school did not have a baseball team. So he joined his father in semi-professional baseball, where he, he definitely made his mark. And got noticed by uh, the Negro Leagues. The Negro, the Negro Leagues, uh, they kind of had their own affiliations with minor league teams. So he played for a Negro minor league team. Uh, and that ne Negro minor league team was actually called the Chattanooga Choo Choo's, which is probably, that's one of my new favorites. That's an elite in name. Of, in terms of weird names. Uh, definitely one of my favorites. And yeah, so he started playing on that team at the age of 16. Age of 16, he's playing for a Negro minor league baseball team. And that was a farm team for the Birmingham Black Barons, which was, uh, that was basically his local Negro league team, pretty much his local professional team because um, there's nothing else in the state of Alabama. There was no major league teams. Yeah, no major league teams in Alabama. So that probably had a big influence on him growing up and he ends up playing for the Birmingham Black Barons in 1948 at the age of 17 and until the school year was over he actually could only play he actually could only play 
uh, weekend home games uh, because he uh, he was told to graduate high school. So he had to play. Uh, he pretty much had to lay low until the school year was over. And then, uh, then he got going in the summer. And he continued to play for the Birmingham Black Barons in 1949 and 1950. And he hit over 300 in both seasons. He's a teenager in the Negro Leagues, hitting over 300, uh, definitely making his mark with the glove. He's the OG uh, Juan Soto. Yeah, for so sure. For sure. And he's coming in, he's getting the attention of Major League Scouts because Jackie Robinson, he, he is the first man to sign uh, with a Major League team. That was in 1946. He made his debut in 1947. So it's becoming more accepted uh, in Major League Baseball. So he starts getting the attention of those Major League s- scouts. Uh, Eddie Montague uh, was the New York Giants, New York at the time, Giants, who, uh, Giants scout. And he found Mays while he was actually scouting another player on the Black Barons. And uh, the manager of the Major League Club, New York Giants, uh, actually wrote in his book, Nice Guys Finish Last, his name's uh, Leo DeRocher. He wrote that Montague reported, they got a kid playing center field, practically barefooted, that's the best ball player I ever looked at. You better send somebody down here with a barrel full of money and grab this kid. And the Giants pretty much did exactly that. They signed Willie Mays for a $4,000 signing bonus and a $250 a month salary, um, which was probably a a decent chunk of change at the time. And uh, definitely some, that would be a preview for the amount of change he would be raking in uh, later in his career when he eventually became the best player in the game. So, alas, the illustrious career of Willie Mays starts in 1950, where he played in the minors in Trenton in Class B, the Class B League. Uh, in 1950, he hit 353 in 81 games, so he hit the ground running. And if you think that's good, he moved up to Double A in 1951 in Minneapolis, and he hit 477 with a 1323 OPS in 35 games. I know 35 games isn't a lot, but 477 is 477. You don't you don't see that. And he was actually uh, he was told to report to his manager while at the ho- uh, at the hotel while he was in a movie theater. So, uh, you know, whatever was whatever was playing back in 1951, he had to he had something more important going on. And um, well, he was told by his minor league manager to tell uh, Leo that he wasn't coming because he thought he couldn't hit in the big leagues. Like they didn't think Willie Mays was going to be able to hit big league. Pitch no, uh, actually, Mays, Willie Mays, he's he thought he could not hit in the big leagues and. Ah, Willie thought he couldn't hit. Yeah, Willie thought he couldn't hit in the big leagues, despite the fact he was hitting 477. But it, well, t- it took some convincing to, to uh, get him to the big league club, which is surprising as it sounds. So, hey, if you're ever hard on yourself in baseball, just remember Willie Mays literally said he couldn't hit major league pitching before he even played a game. <laughs> and his manager asked him if he could hit 250 for the team, which Mays said yes. And then he flew to Philadelphia to meet with the team. And he made his debut on my negative 49th birthday. On, on May 25th, 1951, the age of 20 years and 19 days, which uh, for me, that's about 19 days older than I'll be on, on this year's May 25th. So uh, yeah, that's interesting. 
Uh, he won Rookie of the Year with an 828 OPS, uh, and he helped the Giants reach the World Series. Uh, he was on deck for the shot heard around the world, of course. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. Willie Mays uh, was on deck for that, so unfortunately he didn't get that spotlight. Uh, but he'd be fine later on, as you'll learn. Uh, he slumped in the last two months of the season, and he actually did poorly in the World Series, unfortunately. And in 1952, he got drafted into the military, and he got a standing ovation at Ebbets Field as an opposing player uh, during his final game of 1952. So, of course, he misses the 1953 season due to the war, but he did not get deployed. He spent most of his military service in Virginia, where he learned his signature basket catch, which is, you know, something that could be useful along the line somewhere. Just maybe. Hmm. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the basket catch, the basket catch, it, it was – he had that uh, basket catch that was, you know, facing that mm -hmm. where his back was facing home plate. But he also did it when, you know, his back was facing the center field wall where he was facing the rest of the field because he figured that it would cut the uh, cut the transition off of um, getting the ball out. It would the arm path would be shorter and he could get it in quicker, which is maybe part of the reason maybe that he won. 12 gold gloves and is one of the greatest defensive outfielders of all time. But he comes back from military, uh, from military service. The, uh, the Americans are, are done fighting communism at the, at the moment. And uh, Willie Mays is able to play baseball again. And he becomes an absolute star, absolute Wrecking. star Wrecking machine leads in 1954 after missing a, a year a year and three quarters uh, of baseball comes back like nothing happened comes back with the best season of his career at that point uh, maybe maybe uh, in his entire career you could debate he uh, leads the league in average wins the batting title with a 345 average leads the league in slugging with a 667 slugging percentage and OPS uh, with 1078 also leads the league in triples with 13 and leads the league in baseball reference war with 10.5. That leads him to winning the MVP, rightfully so. Uh, and fun fact about Willie Mays' age 23 season, it is tied for the highest baseball reference war in a season for players 23 and younger. Crazy. Tied with, uh, tied with a few different guys, but tied for the highest nonetheless. And, you know, that season – he has this he has that great offensive season but what he's remembered for most is what he did in the field for what he did in the field uh, when so he he led the he led the team to he helped lead the team to the World Series uh, obviously the best record in the MLB so in game one, it's uh, two, two men on, nobody out, tie game, two to two. And uh, so a guy hits one deep, deep center field in the polo grounds. On Cleveland.
That is known as the catch, the baseball version of the catch. That's right. Rightfully so. Uh, argued as the greatest catch of all time. There's probably some modern ones uh, that could uh, spark debate for sure, but, a, but an awesome catch nonetheless. I think Foolish Baseball actually did a, a good video. A full piece on it, yeah. Yeah, analyzing the catch and showing that, you know, it's not overrated. It's not really underrated. It, it's still a... It is a great catch. And, uh, Not only that, but like the dimensions of polo grounds are super underrated. Like That's probably gone at most modern ballparks. Yeah. And what the historians say about the catch is what was even more impressive was the throw, the awareness yeah. to turn around and throw the ball at a crazy transition speed. And you also consider, yeah, you, you mentioned the polo grounds were about like 480 feet from center field. Guy could have tagged up from second and scored uh, scored from second, but instead yeah. he only goes to third. Walked home. Yeah, and uh, instead he only goes to third. And uh, yeah, the, the Giants win that game uh, because of partially because of that catch. Um, he didn't get the winning hit or anything, but played a huge role in that World Series. Also, in that World Series, he had a 444 on base percentage and an 802 OPS. Uh, the Giants sweep that series against Cleveland, and they win. Willie Mays is a World Series champion uh, at the age of 23. And uh, I feel like that doesn't get enough attention. Like, Willie Mays made that catch at age 23. Yeah, and he, yeah, he was, yeah, he was doing that, and we're, you know, we're going to make some modern modern comparisons later on but yes we are he's definitely uh he was like the i would say he's the first guy that was doing what he was doing mm -hmm. he was the first like true five tool player in the in the live ball era absolutely no doubt about it yeah so in 1955 he continues his dominance he steals a career high 24 bases and then he also sets a career high in home runs Leads the league in home runs with 51. Also leads the league in triples. Not a lot of times you see guys lead the league in both home runs and triples. Uh, has no. a slugging percentage of Also, you don't just see people hitting 13 triples in one season like he did. Yeah, you don't see that things like that happen anymore. Maybe maybe the polo grounds helped oh, him out a little bit. Polo grounds absolutely played a, fa played a factor. Yeah. He also if you've ever played MLB The Show, you know those gaps are enormous. Yeah, yeah. Part, you know, I wish wish I uh, would get the the PlayStation and test that ballpark out because it seems yeah. like a lot of fun. Well, I think I think they've announced that like the show is coming to Xbox soon, though. Yeah, I think for uh, In the next couple of years, MLB the show 21 or 22 or something like that. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, Willie Mays, he's a guy you should have on Diamond Dynasty. I, we're, I guess we're advertising MLB the show now, but he's the guy you should get on Diamond Dynasty for yeah, sure. I don't think they. I don't know if they have the rights to his name yet. I don't play too much, but uh, they should, man. I I'd have to check again. Hold on, let me let me let me check if Willie Mays is in MLB the show. I'll talk more about his 1955 season as you're looking that up. Leads the league in slugging, leads the league in OPS, and leads the league in Baseball Reference WAR. Um, unfortunately for him, only finishes fourth in the MVP voting, which uh, I okay, guess he is. He has a 99 overall card in MLB The Show. Good. That's so there, good. There you go. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So 
That 99 overall player in 1956 continues dominance, has a 926 OPS, and also leads the league in stolen bases with 40. In 1957, he takes things up a notch again, uh, leads the league in slugging at 626, leads the league in stolen bases with 38, leads the league in OPS plus with 173, and also leads the league in wins above replacement with 8.3. It is the only season, 1957, the only season in baseball history, baseball history with 35 plus home runs and 20 plus triples. The only season in baseball history. Willie Mays did that in 1957. That wasn't even his best year. That was probably middle of the pack. And <laughs> he's doing things that no one had ever done in baseball history. And uh, wins his first gold glove in 1957 wins his first gold glove in the awards inaugural inaugural year gold glove was introduced in 1957 willie mays is winning that award immediately and he finishes fourth in the mvp for the second consecutive year and unfortunately for i guess him and new york city uh he has to leave and go to San Francisco after 1957. And he was really inundated in baseball culture or he was inundated in New York baseball culture, which ultimately was kind of baseball culture at the time. You've got the Yankees who that was, that was their peak. The forties and fifties were their absolute peak. They were winning world series, world series is like, it was nothing. You had the Brooklyn Dodgers, who always seemed to be facing the Yankees in the World Series. And then you had the New York Giants, who recently got Willie Mays. They win the World Series in 1954. And he was, a part, he was part of a trio of New York center fielders that absolutely captured the baseball world. It was him, it was Mickey Mantle on the Yankees, and it was Duke Snyder on the Brooklyn Dodgers. All Hall of Famers, obviously. And that was, you know... 1950s baseball it was Willie Mickey and the Duke there was a song in 1981 made by Terry Cashman it was called Willie Mickey and the Duke it's also known as a uh, talking baseball I don't know if I don't know if the audience has heard it it's, it goes like talking baseball Rizuski Campanella so it goes like that and uh, the ultimate title of the song is Willie M- Mickey and the Duke and the reason it was made is because you know that was 50s baseball culture, post-integration yeah. baseball culture. That's right. Yep. So uh, Mays was, you know, very well liked in New York, and he felt at home there. Uh, he would play stickball in the streets after games in New York. And uh, when the team went to San Francisco, there was a lot of appreciation for Mays uh, that went away. Uh, unfortunately for him, he was not opened. He was not welcomed into the city with open, open arms. In fact, he had a brick thrown through his window. Uh, immediately buying after his first home and you know the fans in San Francisco preferred the more homegrown guys such as Orlando Cepeda and Willie McCovey so uh, Mays was not treated too kindly but that didn't mean he wasn't still raking in 1958 he hit 347 with a league leading 1002 OPS he led the league in stolen bases with 31 he also led the league in B war 10 to 10.2 unfortunately he lost the MVP to Ernie Banks but he had 47 home runs and 129 RBI. So it's, it's really hard to, to blame him there. But in 1959, uh, he 
has a 964 OPS, bit of a bit of a down year, but still a 964 OPS is nothing to put shame on. He also had a league leading 27 stolen bases and he finished sixth in the MVP voting. Uh, in 1960, he leads the league in hits with 190. He has a 936 OPS, 25 stolen bases. He's still, he's still, you know, a great power hitter and a great stealer, which is not something you see very often. And he finishes third in the MVP voting. Yeah. And as you mentioned, a big time power hitter and, you know, he, his home run numbers kind of dipped in the middle there, but it starts to rise uh, as he gets into his thirties in 1961. uh, He hits 40 home runs again, uh, has a 977 OPS also 18 stolen bases. And he finishes uh, sixth in the MVP voting, but the highlight of the season ultimately was when uh, on April 30th, they're in Milwaukee to face the Braves. Uh, and uh, Willie Mays does something that only four men had done prior to him. To, uh, him. The Braves beat the Giants in Milwaukee. And baseball history is being made by Willie Mays, who takes his new Burnett in the first inning and promptly smashes his first home run of the day. Only eight men, including the great Drew Berry, have hit four home runs in one game. Today, Willie is joining that select circle. Say, hey boy, was hitless in this series against the Braves until today, but he bounces back with a vengeance. His round trip to the one is a 400 foot belt. The fence is up, bending today for other players on home runs, please, too. Before the game's over, there'll be 10 circuit clubs, including the incredible Willie's third last in the sixth. Milwaukee crowd is all for Willie now as he steps in the eighth and proceeds to poke his record tying over into the stands. Until today, Willie thought he was in a batting slump. Well, he found the cure by scattering baseball's little creatures. It was May's Day in Milwaukee as Willie found his page in the record book. There it is. Willie Mays has a four-homer game. That's basically the ultimate, probably the ultimate single-game achievement you can get. That's basically the hitter version of a perfect game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like... People say people say the cycle, but I've, four home runs yeah, is more impressive every year. Yeah, uh, yeah, four home run games are more impressive. I think there's only 17 right now. I think there were three actually, in the last decade. Yeah, and I think there is less four home run games than perfect games. Not saying that it's uh, more difficult, but it's well, kind I mean, of. I'm just saying level. there's there's nine chances to get a perfect game. Actually, there's 18 chances to get a per, to get a four home run game every game. There's only two chances to get a perfect game. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying? yeah. Nine I, uh, guys in the lineup at one pitcher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so he does that on April 30th, 1961. Has a, another spectacular season. Then in 1962, does even better. Has a league leading 49 home runs. He goes up from 40 home runs to 49 home runs. Has a 9.99 OPS, 18 stolen bases again. Uh, league leading. 10.5 baseball reference war, 
but he loses the MVP. So th there's probably two bad MVP losses for Willie Mays, two, two bad ones, and then you could debate, you know, the others. He loses to a man, Maury Wills. Maury Wills had a 720 OPS and a 6.0 baseball reference war. But apparently, because he had 104 stolen bases, he was more valuable than Willie Mays, according to the baseball, uh, according to the baseball writers. And it's not even like a, it's not even like it was a, a team thing. It's not like he the the Dodgers did better. The the Giants actually beat the Dodgers in a three game playoff to win the pennant. So. I don't know what the writers were thinking with this one. It's it's an absolute travesty. I mean, I think if this season plays out today, it might, I mean, I don't know. A season like this can't play out today because nobody's stealing 104 bases in one season. Like, let's just clear that up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how does he how does he have 49 home runs and not get 1,000 OPS? That is one question I do have. He must have, like, walked a lot as well or something. Yeah, might have not had a lot of doubles. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, he was just – he just was on the, the home run train. Yeah, you don't really see that a lot. Maybe in today's game you will, but don't really see, see that a lot. <laughs> so as I mentioned, the Giants have to go to a three-game playoff series against the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, something they had actually done uh, 11 years prior. Uh, they play a three-game playoff series because, you know, it's three games because – there's only one team from the National League that's going to get in the playoffs. It's 1962. Uh, those were the rules at the time. And if in the three-game playoff, the Giants win in three. Willie Mays was absolutely on a tear in that series. Went five for 11 with three walks. Had two home runs to go along with four RBI. Definitely a big reason why the Giants got to the pennant or to the World Series, won the pennant, got to the World Series. Uh, didn't have the greatest World Series performance, though. And uh, they end up losing in what I believe was – I don't know if it was a shorter series or a longer series. Didn't do very well. Um, but doesn't really take away from the season. Probably should have won MVP. And then in 1960, 1963, uh, he starts raking in the cash, becomes the highest-paid baseball player uh, in the league. He's making $105,000 a year now. And, uh, you know, he definitely backs up why he's the uh, highest paid baseball player in the MLB. He hits 38 home runs with a 962 OPS, leads the league in baseball reference war again. It's another, it's a 10.6 win season for him. And he finishes fifth in the most valuable player voting. Then in 1964, 1964 was another travesty that he didn't win the MVP. He leads the league in home runs, slugging, OPS, and baseball reference war. Uh, he had a he had 47 home runs, 607 slugging, 990 OPS with an 11.0 baseball reference war. You rarely ever see an 11.0 baseball reference war, and it's pointed out very hard in this season. Also had 19 stolen bases. No one in the National League, batting or pitching, was within two wins of Willie Mays. Uh, and the Giants weren't even terrible that year. They didn't go to the World Series, 
but they did get 90 wins. And he finishes sixth. Sixth in the MVP voting. Come on, give him that. You Not got a finalist? Be at least a finalist. He should have won MVP for sure, but at least top three, top two. Come on. Led the Even league in home five. runs. Yeah, led the league in home runs, slugging, OPS, and wins above replacement to go along with 19 stolen bases and can't even crack the top five. Uh, terrible. Terrible stuff. But uh, he kind of makes up kind of makes up for uh, all that. Or the writers, he doesn't make up for anything. The writers finally make up for the absolute terrible Travis decision-making did. on their end. In 1965, he wins the MVP, his second MVP. Uh, that's because be he, hit, he hit – 52 home runs, which led the league, uh, also led the league in on-base percentage, slugging percentage, uh, led the league in OPS with a 1043 OPS, and led the league in baseball reference war with 11.2. And it is the most seasons between MVPs in baseball history. And that's not – it's between winning one and winning your next one. So it's not like like Barry Bonds – probably has the most between you know uh, ages but most between like ages like because he he won one he won one in 1990 like, and, and 2004 2004 but for someone who won you know this one and then their next one most time in between mvps which uh you know you understand why it's because the writers kind of stunk at the jobs and then in 1966 yes. uh has a 924 OPS, leads the league in baseball reference war again for his ninth time in his career, leads the the National League in baseball reference war. He finishes third in the MVP voting, um, and he passes Jimmy Fox in home runs. He had 534. Uh, He passes Jimmy Fox, making him the second second all-time in home runs at the time. Uh, chasing Babe Ruth now and between 61 and 66 I would say I would argue this is the prime of his career between 61 and 66 averaged 44 home runs and a 983 OPS Uh, that's that's basically the best of Willie Mays Chris to go off the point early he won an MVP at age 23 and age 34 yes yeah, I mean, at that point, it was about it was death taxes and Willie Willie Mays leaving the league in B war. Yep, for that sure. Was just a given. Uh, from 1967 to 71, he had an old body, obviously, but still a sharp mind. From 67 to 69, he averaged 19 home runs with an 816 OPS for a guy in his mid to late 30s. That's still very respectable, uh, given the career he had already had, and uh, his 12 year Gold Glove streak unfortunately was uh, snapped. Uh, after 1968, but in 69, he did hit his 600th career home run. Chris, uh, will you roll that clip? Yes. It, it's uh, Actually, it was his last home run of the season. Mm-hmm. It was September 22nd, so it was probably a, he was probably a little rushed to get the 600th homer. But he did it. And here he is.
Would he have been the second player to get to 600? Yeah, he was He was second all time at the time. Yeah. And there wasn't – he was far and away from, from third best at, the, at that time because Fox had 534 – but I guess uh, I guess Aaron was also probably on his tail. I was say Aaron would be the only one who was like I I don't think Arod got it before then. Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, but Hank Pujols Aaron may have snuck in there. Hank Aaron Tomei, started maybe. his career in Sosa. Yeah, Hank Aaron started his career in 1954. Mays started in 1951. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'd say I think it's a safe bet because. Aaron got his 715th, like, when there was color TV. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's safe to say that Willie Mays got to 600 first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. I'm going to look um, that up. Yeah, while Chris looks that up, uh, in 1970, uh, he hit 28 home runs, a 390 on base, and an 897 OPS. And also, uh, when Chris is ready to uh, get this up, uh, on July 18th of that year, he hit, got his 3,000th hit. That is loud. Sorry. He got his 3,000th uh, hit on July 18th of that year. Yeah. Hank Aaron got his 600th home run in 1971. So, so he was, was uh, close. So Mays was, was the second man ahead. to hit the 600 home run mark. Um, mm-hmm. And then he becomes the 10th man the 10th man in uh, baseball history to hit the 3000 hit mark. That's right. Um, now there's a, uh, now there's 32. I'm mowing my... And after this advertisement, <laughs> we're going to take a look at this one. Yeah. We try, we tried to, to open up all the tabs last the week, but uh, it slowed the internet down and we had to eventually Oh. Oh, and two. Wagoner delivers. Mays hits it in the left field. That goes number 3,000. Willie Mays gets his 3,000 base hit. Looks like they're playing in the middle of a desert. Yeah, I like to look at that old stadium. It looks like one of the uh, another MLB the Show reference. It looks like a minor league stadium from MLB the Show. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, 1971. Uh, I just got signed out of the dock for some reason. I'm back in, but I just randomly got signed out of the prep sheet. I don't know why. That's weird. <laughs> uh, but anyway, in 1971, Willie Mays leads the league in walks with 112. Uh, Willie Mays was 41 years old, and people still – I'm sorry, he was – Chris, 40. it says on uh, – okay, never mind. Yeah, he was 40 years old, and people still wouldn't pitch to him. Uh, he had a 425 OBP, which also led the league. Uh, he had a 907 OPS, and his – he had a 989 OPS in the short playoff series lost, unfortunately. And Yeah, they got swept by, uh, swept by the Pirates. Yeah. Um, and, you know – Lost to Roberto Clemente uh, and his pirate squad. That is a uh, show to be named later, History Episodes alum. Yes. Wow. Uh, so he goes back to New York in 1972, gets traded to the Metropolitans, uh, a.k.a. the Mets, uh, which were a relatively new team, 10 years old at that time. Uh, he got traded to them on May 11th, 1972. 
He played 69 games with them that year and had a 402 OBP with an 848 OPS. And in 1973, uh, he slowed it down a bit. He had a 647 OPS in 66 games. And the team hosted Willie Mays night on September 25th to honor his career. He said, quote, I hope that with my farewell tonight, you'll understand what I'm going through right now. Something that I never feared that I will, that I were ever to quit baseball. But as you know, there always comes a time for someone to get out. And I look at these kids over there, the way they are playing and the way they are fighting for themselves. And it tells me one thing, Willie say goodbye to America. Thank you very much. And unfortunately he misplayed a couple balls in center field. Uh, but he did hit the go-ahead single in the, tw- in the 12th inning of Game 2 of the World Series, and he went 3 for 10 uh, total in the playoffs that year. One thing that I – one sort of takeaway is I have a feeling that, like, Willie Mays going to the Mets really, like, caught a lot of fans' attention, and, like, there might be some Mets fans that became Mets fans instead of the Yankees because of Willie Mays. Yeah, there was uh, – it was a thing because, you know, Yogi Berra was the – manager at the time and he got pressure kind of from fans and media for him mm-hmm. to play him more because Mays was more of a platoon guy when they acquired him yeah so he got pressure to to play him more uh from the fans but he did want to put the best lineup out there and you know I'm not sure when Mays started but he probably was more of a guy that was started against lefties I would imagine um and yeah he uh yeah, he kind of became a, a fan f- favorite over there and kind of re- revitalized non-Yankees baseball in New York. Yeah. Uh, so, unfortunately, Willie Mays did eventually have his career come to an end uh, after his age 42 season in 1973. But nonetheless, an outstanding career. And we'll get more into his all-time ranks in a, in a little bit. But first of all, his, yep. for his post-career, uh, he's done public relations work for the Mets as well as Colgate Palomative and uh, Bally's Casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to work in MLB for a while uh, because he was working at a casino due to betting concerns. But uh, guess what? He's in the Hall of Fame, unlike someone else with betting concerns, uh, who is an all-time MLB great. Gotta wonder what's going on there. He was voted in in 1979 with a 94.7 voting percentage. And uh, also... Uh, some personal family stuff. Uh, he has acted sort of as a father uh, to our favorite guy ever, Barry Bonds, uh, who, of course, he is the godfather of after Bobby Bonds passed away. And he was voted the number two greatest baseball player of the 20th century for the all-century team. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess number one was Ted Williams. No, number one uh, was uh, Babe, or Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, Ted, but yeah, Ted Williams was probably like top five num- number three <laughs> i would yeah i would I'd say top three. four like maybe hank aaron may have gotten him possibly possibly there's there's debate there um but yeah he ranks he he had, the thing with the casino uh thing he he wasn't like he wasn't betting. playing at the time he, he wasn't betting but um it it was a thing where like he signed a deal he signed a deal with Bally's Casino so that automatic at, automatically mm-hmm. made him unable to work uh, in the MLB at the same time because there was concern that there could be things there but there was no actual like uh, collusion going on with him right he right. was just still he decided, I mean still does make you think Chris 
Yeah, it makes it makes it think a little bit, but I don't think it was a situation. It's no. definitely not like obviously what I'm the thing I'm implying here is the Pete Rose comparisons and like obviously what they did are two different things. But Yeah, and Pete Rose also we we both agree. Like when you're betting on your own team, like where who's who really cares? <laughs> that's that's our Pete Rose thing. Like but, if you want to send a message, I get it, but I don't think keeping him out of the Hall of Fame is – I think that's too strong of a message. Maybe you, like, suspend him from baseball. You, you, you keep him banned from baseball, you put him in. Maybe you lift that ban after, like, 20 years or something when no one else really cares about it, you know? Just make it a big talking point for a long time, and then when nobody cares, here it is. Here he is. Yeah, it's just – it's so much semantics. It's yeah. it's real nonsense for, for sure. Um, but Pete Rose – Pete Rose doesn't really, he, he cares, but he doesn't care too much. He'll still, he's still like kind of. Uh, he's made his own character now. Him. Yeah, he's, he's his own character for sure. Mm-hmm. He had a good brief time uh, on Fox Sports 1. But yeah. back, back to the main character of the episode, Mr. Willie Mays. He, where he ranks all time, he ranks like no one else. He's 12, 12th all time in hits currently with 3,283, 12th all-time in RBI with 1,903, 7th all-time in runs scored, 6th all-time in extra base hits, 5th all-time in home runs with 660 home runs, could be 6th all-time soon because of a man uh, that we talked about last week, if you want to check out the Albert Pujols episode. He's at 656. uh, we, We have... We have that episode from last week, but back to Willie Mays. He's also third all-time in total bases, which is pretty surprising to me. He's also going back to another uh, another uh, show to be named later, History alum, Roberto Clemente. He's tied for the most gold gloves as an outfielder with Roberto Clemente with 12. Both of them uh, in their own years – had 12 straight gold gloves. Uh, so they are tied for most gold gloves as an outfielder with 12. He also has the second most, he's led the league, he's led the National League in wins above replacement among, among both pitchers and batters nine times. Uh, that is the second most amount of times uh, in any league, in National League or American League. And he also is tied for the second amount second most amount of 10 win seasons had six 10 win seasons. That's tied for the second most amount of 10 win seasons. And the only player to have more than three 10 win seasons uh, since Willie Mays or no, he's the, he's the only player. He's the only player since Rogers Hornsby to have more than three 10 win seasons. I'm going to make a, I'm going to have to edit that part out. But he's the only player to have um, more than three 10-win seasons than Rogers Hornsby. A lot of numbers there. But Mike Trout could be chasing him. Mike Trout currently has three 10-win seasons. He's heading into his age 29 season. He currently has three 10-win seasons. And it kind of sparks a thing of comparing the two because Mike Trout is – is what Millie, or what Willie Mays was uh, through the first, through each of their first nine seasons, 
kind of had same career tra trajectories. Uh, Trout had a short first season because, uh, you know, he was called up in whatever, July. And Willie Mays had a short second season because he went into military service. So they're within, through their first nine seasons, they're within 19 games of each other. Uh, they're within 29 plate appearances of each other. They're within 19 runs scored of each other. They're within 18 doubles of each other. They're within six home runs of each other, within four points of slugging percentage with each other, and within 25 points of OPS uh, with each other. Mike Trout, through his first nine seasons, has 72.8 wins above replacement, according to baseball reference. And Willie Mays, through his first nine seasons, had 68.1. So they're within... Uh, five wins above replacement uh, of each other in the first nine seasons. And also something that is exactly the same between both of them. They have both led their respective league in position player war five times in their first nine seasons. Both of them right. uh, did it five times in their first nine seasons. And Willie Mays is, uh, he's definitely the best player in Giants history. He leads the Giants in wins above replacement, uh, offensive wins above replacement, games played, plate appearances, at-bats, runs scored, hits, total bases, doubles, home runs, and also he's third among Giants in stolen bases. So he's doing all – he gets all the power numbers, gets all the hitting measures, and he's still stealing bases for the Giants. And, you know, why I kind of – chose Willie Mays, why I love Willie Mays, why I love talking about him. He was kind of a, he was a representative of, of something uh, in baseball. No one had ever seen a player like Willie Mays. He's the ultimate example of a five-tool player, and he was probably the first five-tool player, uh, ultimately. And well, it, I've it's, I'd say. It's exemplified uh, – when he became the first member of the 300 home run, 300 stolen base club. Now, a few players have done it since then, but he was the first. He was the, he was first, the first guy to do he that. He opened the door for everyone else. He opened the door for everyone else, and he did that while he was winning gold gloves. That's yep. five to a player, and no one had ever seen anything like that. And also, you think geographically. He is one of the faces of both New York baseball and West Coast baseball. Mm -hmm. He was at the peak of New York baseball with, you know, Willie Mickey and the Duke. It's the peak of the Yankees, peak of the Dodgers, probably peak of the Giants before, uh, you know, the, yeah, the 2010s. Peak of the New York, peak of the New York Giants for sure. And uh, he's part of that culture. And then he goes to the West Coast and uh, he kind of breaks open as a West Coast baseball player. That's where he spends most of his career and uh, kind of brings, uh, brings professional baseball uh, to, to the West Coast. And also, you also have to think racially. He yeah. was, you know, he came in four years after Jackie Robinson, and he was probably at the forefront of players that got people on the side of integration. They saw how good of a guy he was and how he played the game, and people got on board with him. He would go out and play stickball with people in the streets of New York. Yeah, like he would the just face do that. Of, 
as the face of, of New York sports at that time, you could argue. Like, he's just going – he's one of the people. Yeah, and uh, a baseball historian, Jules Tygeel, I I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, he wrote Maze. He wrote in his book, Maze, with his indisputable excellence convinced all but the most stalwart resistors to integration of the need to recruit African-Americans. He was someone that really, uh, you know, led the way. I mean, obviously, Jackie Robinson is the main guy, but he was one of those guys where, like, this guy can be the greatest center fielder of all time, and that's exactly what he was. Uh, and I'll quote, close out my... Willie Mays soapbox with a couple of quotes. Uh, Don Zimmer, who Don Zimmer, who is who worked in Major League Baseball for like over 50 years. Yeah. He said, in the National League in the 1950s, there were two opposing players that stood out over all others, Stan Musial and Willie Mays. I've always said that Willie Mays was the best player I ever saw. He could have been an all-star at any position. Strong words from Don Zimmer. Uh, definitely putting Willie Mays on a pedestal. And then mm -hmm. Ernie Banks, Ernie Banks, who uh, won beat him MVP. out for an MVP. Yeah, Ernie Banks, who won the MVP over him uh, two times. Ernie Banks said, when I was in the big leagues, there was a tremendous amount of great ball players, But the guy who stood head and shoulders above them all was Willie Mays. He was so exciting, not only exciting to the fans, but to the teams he played with, the Giants and against. He was just amazing. Willie Mays, greatest center fielder of all time. The uh, Say Hey Kid. The Say Hey Kid, probably, you know, top three careers of all time in Major League Baseball. You know, 660 home runs, 338 stolen bases. He was the first guy to look like an Alex Rodriguez or a Mike Trout, mm -hmm. you know, even uh, – you know, probably very like bonds. become sort of the benchmark. Like when you yeah. talk about the all-time greats, Willie Mays is one of, if not the first players you talk about. You know, you talk about a player with a good, really good young star like Mike Trout. Let's look at where he compares to Willie Mays. You talk about a guy having a great four or five-year stretch. Let's look at Willie Mays from 61 to 66. You talk about a great defensive catch. Look at Willie Mays in, in this photo right here behind me. Mm -hmm. It's Willie Mays is the benchmark. Yeah, when you're talking about – when you ask if a guy's a five-tool player mm -hmm. in the outfield, you ask, oh, is he, is he a Willie Mays type? Is he Willie Mays? Yeah. yeah. He, was, he was definitely, you know, and of those, of all those guys, you know, that post-integration era baseball, there were probably four guys you would talk about. There's, uh, there's him, there's Hank Aaron, there's Mickey Mantle, there's Roberto Clemente. And, you know, no one, you know, Mays was able to hit for power. You know, not all not all those guys were able to do what Willie Mays was able to do, you know, hitting for power, hitting for average, uh, having a good glove, being able to throw the baseball and being able to steal bases. No one was able to do all five of those things like Willie Mays. And, yep. you know, there haven't been – there's maybe one or two guys that have been able to do it like him since then. And the, they're a special group of players. So that ends our Willie Mays – portion of the episode yeah. um we will be right back uh talking about the 2014 giants and their historical run go, go and on. we're back talking about the 2014 san francisco giants uh probably probably one of my favorite to the 
my favorite team that we've done on uh, this episode. And ultimately, looking back, it's probably my favorite team that we've done, that the, my favorite Giants team that we could have done. Yeah. Glad, glad you chose this one. What was the what, – what were the Giants looking like in spring training? Well, Chris, they had gone through a World Series hangover in 2013. Of course, they win the World Series in 2010, miss the playoffs in 11, win the World Series in 2012, miss the postseason in 2013. So they had a bit of a pattern going, and they had a lot of high expectations if they wanted to keep said pattern alive in 2014. They had a 76-86 and 86 record in 2013, which tied for third in the NL West. Uh, and most of the 2010 and 2012 teams were still there, but the problems were that they weren't getting any younger. The core was kind of aging. Uh, they needed new people to step up, or they just needed the old guys to do what they've been doing on a higher level. And they were not supposed to win the division. Uh, the Dodgers had won the division previously, uh, and they, were seeing, they seemed to be the much better team. Uh, and the Giants, they didn't make too many big moves uh, in the offseason. They lost Barry Zito, if you want to look at that. But um, he was he was old at that point, not very efficient. Really, the one significant guy they did get uh, was Michael Morse in free agency to be their starting left fielder. So uh, this team started out a lot better than I remember. Uh, they were on May thirtieth. They were thirty-seven and nineteen, which was far and away the best record in baseball. Uh, they had a six-sixty-one winning percentage, and the next best team throughout the whole league was six oh eight. So they were heads and shoulders above the rest of the league. And that was both a part of their starting pitching and their starting lineup. Madison, Madison Bumgarner, the ace of the staff, was 7-3 with a 2.85 ERA. He had 10.53 Ks per nine in 72.2 innings pitched. And Tim Hudson, in his age 38 season, was just as efficient as ever. His 60.7 ground ball rate led the NL. He also had a 1.92 ERA in 70.1 innings pitched. Uh, Ryan Vogelsong at age 36, Chris will uh, dive deep into his career in a little bit. Yep. Um, he went three and two with a 3.45 ERA in that span with 62.2 innings pitched. And from the lineup, Michael Morse, their new addition, 296, 354, 575, 929 slash line. Also his 163, career, 163 weighted runs created plus ranked seventh in the National League. Hunter Pence, they're starting right fielder, 290, 365, 470, 835. He was one of 21 two-win hitters in the whole league. He had a two. It's right. He had a 2.0 WAR, uh, F WAR, at that time. Angel Pagan, another outfielder. This is basically the whole outfield was dominating. 325, 365, 448, 814. Uh, his 325 batting average ranked eighth in the league. Also on April 12th, uh, Madison Bumgarner did it from the other side of the ball. He hit his first career grand slam. And Chris, why don't you roll that clip? Madison Baumgartner proving that he doesn't need a universal DH, even though that might get implemented soon. Yeah, his uh, <laughs> his offensive year was crazy, and his, you know, 
his uh, pitching, his year from the rubber was also great as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the Giants, yeah, Giants are hot through May 30th, through, through June 8th. They were 43-21, and 21, um, and their offense looked hot. Their pitching looked hot. And then things start to slow down a little bit. From June 9th through June for, through July 31st, through June 9th through July 31st, they were 16 and 29. Uh, they had a 631 OPS in that time frame, and that ranked 29th in Major League Baseball uh, from June 9th to July 31st. Mm-hmm. And they ranked dead last in runs from June 9th through July 31st. Also, from in that time frame, they were 10 games up in the National League West on June 9th, or I believe af- yeah, after June 8th, they were 10 games up in the National League West uh, over the Dodgers, over everybody. And on July 31st, about seven weeks later, they're three games back of the Dodgers in the mm-hmm. NL West. Huge downfall. Uh, they're... Uh, overall record at the trade deadline is 59 and 50 and uh, they end up getting some reinforcement. They get Jake Peavy from the reigning defending uh, world series champion, Boston Red Sox, who were having a terrible year that year. Yeah, they were. They get Jake Peavy. They trade Heath Hembry. <laughs> who, and Eduardo uh, Escobar. Who, who, uh, at, Eduardo or uh, Edwin Escobar? It was Edwin. Yeah, you're right. Eduardo yeah. Escobar is the third baseman for the Diamond. I would have been, I would have been pissed if we got rid of. Eduardo. Oh man, I would have been. I mean, I guess the Red Sox have Devers, but I would not mind having Eduardo Escobar. Yeah, if if it turned out that we got rid of him some somehow some way, that would have been terrible. <laughs> but luckily, luckily it was just Edwin, and uh, yeah, the Giants end up getting Jake Peavy, who ended up doing pretty well for them. Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, the summer was bad uh, for the whole team, but there were some cool individual moments. Uh, on June 25th, right after my last day of school, I remember I went, uh, I finished up my last day of school with my friend. We went to a trampoline park, and then we came back home to watch the last two innings. Of two months ago, second no-hitter in his career. His second in two years against the same team, nonetheless, against the San Diego Padres. Chris, uh, I put up a video. Yeah, uh, I got why it. Why don't you play that? Here we are, Tim come, kind of past his prime, but he's still producing for the rotation. Yeah. Leads us to the ninth inning. Nothing, Giants. Denarfia. One down in the ninth. And the 3-2 pitch. On the ground, Lincecum's got it. Two down in the ninth. And now Linscombe's in the driver's seat, one and two. He looks into Hector Sanchez. On the ground to Panic. Panic to Posey. And Linscombe has done it again. He has no hit the San Diego Padres for the second time in two years. What a great performance. By that kid. 
two different years on, ironically, two uh, back-to-back years. Uh, Santiago, Santiago Casilla took over the closer role uh, on July 5th, and he went 17 for 18 in save opportunities after that, uh, a 170 RA for the whole year. And on July 13th, stop me if you've heard of this before, Madison Bumgarner hit a grand slam, his second of the year. Yeah. He, uh, you know, it was a game where Buster Posey had actually hit a grand slam uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the game. Yeah. And uh, you got that's, bases. That's a battery if I've ever seen one. Yeah. What a, and we'll get into the awards that they won. But here's Madison Bumgarner with the bases loaded. I can't wait to have I can't wait for when Madison Bumgarner pinch hits this year for the Diamondbacks. <laughs> it's gonna be yeah. great. Uh also uh Madison Bumgarner, Tim Hudson, and Hunter Pence all made the all-star teams this year for the Giants. And speaking of Hunter Pence, uh around early August, he started getting abused uh by forms of bullying by major league baseball fan bases across the world. Warning. Uh, this is uh, not family-friendly content. We try to be a family-friendly show, uh, but we're just going to put a warning on what you're about to see. It might be graphic. This is where Hunter Pence, of course, plays. He's stepping to the plate. If you are a baseball fan, you probably know about this kind of social media thing that's gone on with Hunter Pence because fans love him. And what you're supposed to do is make a sign that basically says something you see here, like Hunter Pence got to be in jail. Yeah, I mean, I mean that is absolutely disgusting behavior if I've ever seen it, Chris. You know, if yeah, you want to yeah, poke I know, player, I know it is. I know it's a little lighter, but you we talk about these guys in the integration era, mm-hmm. and Hunter Pence is kind of facing not on the same scale, but that it's scale, close. that bullying, that type of bullying. Yeah, uh, you could see that type of stuff. It had been, you know, probably. 56 years since we've seen that bullying and uh what that's pretty disgusting i mean how long do you think that guy's sentence was um sentence for for what prison um i mean you know that is hate speech that probably incites violence so yeah that's that's a few years uh at least least in my court in my court Saying that he lost his wallet at a fish concert. Yeah, come on. That, that can't fly. Say whatever you want, but you, you got to cross the line at some point. And I think if that's it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely disgusting behavior uh, from that. Not, not just Colorado Rocky fans, of the, as you just saw there. Uh, this was happening in New York. It happened in Kansas City. It happened in numerous different places. MLB Network even did a segment about it. I mean, why are they encouraging this? I mean, it's, it's disgusting, to say the least. Yeah. 
It's it's absolutely disturbing images. I'm sorry you guys had to see that. But the Giants did have a strong finish to the regular season uh, in August and September. They were kind of treading water with a 29 and 24 record, but uh, they were able to make the playoffs. Jake Peavy was a big part of that. A 2.17 ERA in 78.2 innings pitched after his acquisition. Uh, and also he had a 135 ERA in his final 60 innings uh, in his final nine starts, um, which led off qualifying pitchers from August 13th on. So he was huge for San Francisco. The 88 and 74 record got them the second wild card spot. Uh, thanks to the Brewers going nine and 17 in the month of September. And after the last regular season game, uh, Hunter Pence grabbed a mic, got to the pitcher's mound, gathered the team together and gave a speech for the ages before the team went off to Pittsburgh to play in the wild card game. Now today, instead of just saying that we're together, we're going to be together. We're going to be that today. I want to do a little something with you guys. But before we get there, I'm going to tell you a little story about a meeting we had with the team and the staff in the first day of spring training about vision. We asked everyone, we said, today we're going to pull every fiber of our beings collectively. I'm going to challenge each and every one of you, every fiber of your being, to see yourself as a World Series champion. This regular season, we did step one. We got to the playoffs. We got step one. Thank you. With that vision in mind, we want you guys to share this with us in this journey as we go into the postseason. Yes. And <laughs> as we share this vision, we had another vision earlier in the year. I don't know if any of you guys remember the yes movement. Do you any guys remember a couple of the home runs we hit with a little yes, 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 you guys remember that? We're going to do this together. We're going to share this right now because I want this vision to come to fruition. We had a vision of doing it with the whole stadium as one. So if you're not familiar, I'm going to tell you guys, you load up like this, load your guns, and when I throw my hand up, you throw your hands up and drop a yes, yes, yes. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Give me a yes, yes, yes. Okay, right there, right there. Hold on. Right now, we're not guaranteed another game here at home. Right now, we're not guaranteed that. We got to go earn that. It's a part of the journey. Do you guys want to see another game here at home? Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm talking about. That's together. Now, with you guys, some of you, I'm sure, might be coming to Pittsburgh. Some of you are going to be sitting in your couches, but you're with us and you're sharing that vision. And I'm going to ask each and every one of you, it's not weird if you have to wear your orange hat or your Buster Posey jersey, or you got to be in your car driving so Buster can hit a home run, or so Abel can strike somebody out and not throw a scud. It's not weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why Abel scud came to mind, but it did. So last but not least, we all want to give you a big thank you. It's been unbelievable. We cannot wait to see you again. One more time, fellas. Yes, yes, yes. Looking forward to seeing you. Thank you. Those poor Pittsburgh people that with that coming into their city, that is a force to be reckoned with if I've ever seen one. Yes, yes, yes. So... They come into Pittsburgh, and you know they're they're a they're a very good uh, team. They come in, 
with ranking in the National League, they ranked fourth in the National League in OPS plus and tenth in the National League in uh, ERA plus, which is ballpark adjusted stuff. So, um, you know, even though, you know, their average or, o- or regular OPS probably looked a l- little lower, their OPS plus um, adjusted them to being one of the better offenses offenses in the National League um, and ultimately one of the worst uh, pitching staffs in the National League, which, which is pretty surprising because when you think of, uh, when you think of, the Giants, you probably think of their pitching. Buster Posey uh, was one of those guys that raised uh, that that uh, Giants offense, being one of the better ones in the National League. And he finished fifth in the National League in OPS plus with one one hundred forty three. Uh, finished sixth in the MVP voting and also won the Silver Slugger. Uh, Madison Bumgarner. Madison Bumgarner had a two nine eight ERA, a three oh five FIP also finished fourth in the Cy Young voting. And on the other side of the ball, hitting Madison Bumgarner hit four home runs and had a 755 OPS as a pitcher, mm-hmm. had two home runs that were grand slams, as we showed you, and uh, definitely earned the silver slugger that he won. Yeah. And uh, they're uh, – with that, with those stats, they are heading into Pittsburgh. So, of course, Bumgarner is on the hill uh, for the Giants. They're facing off against Edison Volquez, and it was a scoreless game in the fourth inning until Brandon Crawford, their shortstop, came up with the bases loaded and no one out. Chris, what you're about to hear is a stadium die. Just listen to the sound in the ballpark before and after the contact. It is night and day. Yeah, literally. I mean, I, I pulled up the video. I forgot couldn't uh turn the audio off and it was loud it is loud over there and this is bases loaded no outs like pretty much guaranteed they're getting at least one run and they're still rowdy and the curveball is hit high and deep to right field it is gone brandon crawford silences the crowd here in pittsburgh with a grand slam Dead silent. It really did just die. <laughs> so uh, that was all that Madison Bumgarner needed. In fact, that was much, much more than Bumgarner needed. A sack fly would have done because he pitched nine innings, allowing four hits, zero runs, one walk, and 10 strikeouts. That is one of the best starts that we've highlighted since starting this uh, history-based show. The Giants won 8 to nothing, and they advanced to play the Washington Nationals in the division series. Yeah, they go to Washington. They face the team that had the most wins in the National League, uh, 96 wins, talented staff, probably the best, one of the, one of the better national staffs, pitching staffs uh, of kind of their uh, run of pitching. Mm-hmm. They had... Jordan Zimmerman and probably his best year. They had Doug Fister in his best year. They had Steven Strasburg. Um, but the this Giants. This is even pre-Serger too. Uh, what? They didn't. This is even pre-Serger. Yeah, this is pre-Serger and they're still dominating. Mm-hmm. Um, and in game one, Jake Peavy doesn't really care who he's facing. He's going to shut it down no matter what. 
uh, Jake Peavy coming off, you know, enter after August 13th, he was the best pitcher in baseball, had a 1335 ERA, which was the best among qualifying pitchers. And that really carried over into the National League Division Series. He had five and two, he went five and two thirds, uh, allowing two hits, three walks, uh, getting three strikeouts and shutting out the Nationals during those five and two thirds. Uh, wins the pitcher's duel over Steven Strasburg. Giants got RBIs. Uh, Giants scored off of Strasburg with RBIs from Buster Posey, Brandon Belt, and also 23-year-old rookie Joe Panic. And the Giants ended up winning that game, one uh, three to two. Uh, and they're up one nothing. Steal a game on the road. Steal they stole a game on the road. Pretty mm-hmm. much good to go until uh, until they go back to San Francisco. But doesn't doesn't uh, stop them from doing anything in game two. In game two, the Nationals uh, basically shut the Giants down until the top of the ninth. They were up one to nothing, and uh, Drew Storen is in to close the game with two outs. Pablo Sandoval is up. Pablo Giants Sandoval down is up. Their final out. They're down to their final out, but there is also man men on first and second. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see what Pablo Sandoval was able to do in that situation. Sandoval into the opposite field. That's a fair ball. Panic scores. And this game is tied. They're going to try it with Posey. The throw to the plate. And it's time to get it. And. That ties the game, and they are going to extras. And when we say went, extras, we mean extras. Extras. They went a while. They went forever. Uh, and uh, Yosmero Petit had a Nathan Nathan Eovaldi esque performance. He was the original Nathan Eovaldi, except he, he was Nathan Eovaldi before Nathan Eovaldi. Uh, he goes in in extras. Goes six innings, allows just one hit, three walks, strikes out seven, and obviously shuts down the Nationals uh, in those six innings. Then in the 18th inning, at I don't, I don't even know a clock, Brandon Belt comes up to the plate. Brandon Belt comes up to the plate after the Giants have not scored for eight innings. He comes up to the plate and uh, gets this lead with one swing of the bat. Even you're getting into it now. Yeah. Belt with a drive, hammered to deep right field, and that one is gone! So finally... There, someone has broken the tie, and it is the Giants, and uh, they shut it down in the bottom of the 18th and win that game two to one. They're up two to nothing, heading back home. Things are going very well for them. And then in game three, uh, you got Madison Bumgarner going against Doug Fister, but uh, in this crazy alternate universe, Doug Fister outduels Madison Bumgarner. Uh, 
as the Nationals were able to score two off of uh, Bumgarner in the seventh. Uh, they did the unthinkable. Partially due to an error by Madison Bumgarner. Ultimately, the Nationals win four to one, and uh, they get their first win of the series. They're still down two to one uh, in San Francisco. And that leads us to the game four starter of the National League Division Series for the Giants. Ryan Vogelsong, when you talk about resilience, the resilience Chris, this is a story you've been waiting to tell for a while. And I was really happy when, when we landed on this team and you could tell this story. The resilience of the Giants of the 2010s. They were never really pro- projected to win the World Series in the years that they won the World Series but they won it. And that resilience is kind of exemplified with their four starter, Ryan Vogelsong. Ryan Vogelsong, let me tell you a little something about Ryan Vogelsong. He grew up in Atlin, Pennsylvania. If you haven't heard of it, most people have not heard of it. I bet some people who live there don't even know that they live there. Their, their population that town, their population did not eclipse 1,000 people on the U.S. Census until the year 2000. There's about 1,200 people that live there. 1,200 people. That's the amount of people that probably go to your average person's high school. And not that mine. was the amount of people that lived. That's half the amount of people that go to our college. Yeah, just about. Just about. Uh, less than that, actually. Yeah. And... Uh, he was drafted in 1998 by the San Francisco Giants out of Cutstown University of Pennsylvania. If you haven't heard of Cutstown University of Pennsylvania, that's because they're a Division II school. And he was drafted in the fifth round out of a Division II school. Uh, I don't know. Guess he, guess he didn't have a lot of eyes on him beforehand. Uh, then in 2001, he gets traded by the Giants. Uh, appears in two games with Pittsburgh before getting Tommy John surgery. So he gets Tommy John surgery early in his career and uh, comes back in 2003. And from 2003 to 2006 with the Pirates, uh, appears in 101 games. He started 31 of those appearances and had a 587 ERA in 274 and a third innings. And obviously after that, the major leagues don't really want anything to do with him. Goes, flies halfway across the world, halfway across this globe, and pitches in Japan. Pitches in Japan for three years, probably in his prime years, from ages 29 to 31 in 2007 through 2009. Then he comes back to America, signs with the Phillies in 2010, and then got released mid-season after having a 4.91 ERA in 58 and two-thirds innings. Then 12 days later in 2010, uh, signs with the Angels, and as an average season in the minors for the Angels, uh, doesn't get re-signed by them. Then he goes to Venezuela to pitch in the Winter League in 2010 and 2011, and then goes back to where he was originally drafted by the Giants. Goes to the Giants in 2011. Then in the 2011 Giants, they were riddled by injuries. They had Barry Zito have injury problems. They had Jonathan Sanchez have injury problems. They needed a guy, and they take a chance on Mr. Ryan Vogelsong, who was 33 at the time, or at least in his age 33 season. They take the chance 
on Ryan Vogelsong. And what does Ryan Vogelsong do after he gets called up, after the Giants take a chance on this 33-year-old? He has a 2-1-7 ERA through the All-Star break and makes the All-Star team after not being in the big leagues since 2006. Imagine, imagine being one of the 33 best players in your league after not even being in that league in five years. That is exactly what Ryan Vogelsong did. In the 2012 playoffs, he allows three runs in 24 and two-thirds innings and didn't allow more than one run in any appearance. This is after pitching in Japan, after pitching in the minors, getting released in the minors, going to Venezuela, all that. And then in game four of the 2014 National League Division Series, after a Tommy John surgery, after having a 5.86 career MLB ERA and getting tossed to Japan, after pitching three years in Japan, and after being acquired and let go by four major league teams, Ryan Vogelsong goes out there and secures that victory, going five and two-thirds, allowing two hits, one run, two walks, and striking out four. And Joe Panic scores the go-ahead run on a wild pitch, and the Giants are going to the National League Championship Series on the resilience of Ryan Vogelsong and the rest of that team. The team had a 1-6-0 ERA in that series and held the Nationals to a 164 222, 258, 480 slash line. And they are advancing to the National League Championship Series for their third time in the last five years. Chris, I'm ready to run through a brick wall after that. Yes. That was outstanding. So the, the Giants go to the NLCS against the St. Louis Cardinals, who had knocked out their old rivals, the Dodgers, um, in spectacular fashion. They knocked down Clayton Kershaw. And in game one of the series, Bumgarner started. So yeah, it pre- I pretty much explains itself. Bumgarner went seven and two-thirds innings pitched, zero earned runs, four hits, one walk, and seven strikeouts in a 3 nothing win. Uh, in game two, however, uh, definitely more power base. The Cardinals hit four home runs, highlighted by Colton Wong hitting a walk-off home run in the, in the ninth. Uh, so it is 1-1 going into San Francisco. And in game three, a uh, bit of a weird game. The Giants score four in the first. The Cardinals uh, creep back in and eventually tie it. And then in the 10th inning, Pat Neshek is on for the Cardinals, looking to lock it down in the 10th and keep the game alive. Yeah, definitely a, definitely a weird game. Definitely a weird ending to this one. Mm-hmm. And here we are. First and second, nobody out. I'm sorry, Randy Choate was on the mound. Randy Choate on the mound. You got Gregor Blanco. Trying to move some runners over. The bunt. Perfect. Wild throw. And the Giants win game three. That can't happen. (laughs) Not your prototypical playoff walk-off. No, certainly. I mean, the 2013-14 Cardinals were just the, the team of weird postseason finishes. Like 2013 in the World Series, you have the obstruction call, and you have Colton Wong getting picked off, and then you have that. Yeah, all that was missing was like a balk, walk-off. Balk. Yeah, the classic, the balk-off. Uh, anyway, in game four, uh, unfortunately for Fogosong, he did struggle as they were behind 4-1, to one, but the Giants scored two in the third. 
then three in the sixth on some small ball. And, of course, Yusmero Petit, the unsung hero of this team, pitched a shutout third, fourth, ah, fourth, fifth, and sixth. The Giants won. They're up three to one in the series. And in game five, Bumgarner, his worst start of <laughs> – I'm reading this line. It's so funny because this is truly the worst start he had in the 2014 playoffs. He he let out a weak eight innings pitched, five hits, two walks, and three earned runs. I mean, that's just barely a quality start. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are we doing here? So the panic hits a two-run home run. Michael Morse ties it in the eighth with a with a solo home run. And coming into the ninth, the Giants have – have uh, runners on first and second for some guy who was drafted in the 21st round out of high school in 2002 by the Giants. He played parts of the 2006 and 2008 season for the Giants, was signed as a first baseman in 2009 and 2010, was DFA'd and outrighted to the minors in 2011 to make room for Brandon Belt. Uh, he doesn't play in the majors in 2011. He signs with the Brewers in 2012, signs with the Orioles in 2013 because he was taken off the Brewers 40-man, was waived by the Orioles, picked up the Yankees by, for six days, DFA'd by the Bronx Bombers, signs with the White Sox five days after he gets designated, spends all of 2013 in the minors, considered retirement, and but decided to play one more season just because why not. He eventually signed with the Pirates, but he got DFA'd by them on April 19th. And he signed with the Giants on April 25th, just on, on a waiver deal, because why not? He was called up on July 29th because of injuries. And oh, by the way, Mike Morse and Adrian Bagan were both injured, even though Mike Morse homered. So he had to play the unfamiliar outfield. And he also had a bad misread on a line drive against the Cardinals in game five. And that man is Travis Ishikawa. Play the clip. Travis Ishikawa hits one in the right. The Giants win the pennant. You know, Chris, I've been watching baseball for pretty much my whole life, and I've seen so many things where I just look at my TV and think, I cannot believe I just saw that. And top one on that list might be Travis Ishikawa hitting a home run to send the Giants to the World Series after everything he'd been through. He got designated by like five different teams, something in that ballpark. He was just trying to, he was just fighting to stay on a major league roster to get some sort of paycheck. Now he's a lifelong hero in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, truly a, a humble underdog story. He was never supposed to be good. He was drafted in the 21st round. Yeah. Uh, he, he was the you know, definition of a journeyman. He started maybe two years with the Giants. Um, didn't really – wasn't even on the Giants, I don't think, in like – even their best, or he was on there in, in yeah. 2010, but, you know, kicked kicked out of his own position by an up-and-coming star and uh, comes up when the game matters most with a with an opportunity to clinch 
uh, and send the Giants back to the World Series, and that's exactly what he does. So contrary to popular belief, uh, Ishikawa actually did have more than one plate appearance in that series. He actually went 5 for 13 with an 1198 OPS and 7 RBI. Pablo Sandoval uh, had a 400 average and a 1028 OPS. But Madison Bumgarner, of course, won the NLCS MVP, and he deserved it. 15 and two-thirds innings pitch, nine hits, three walks, three runs, and 12 strikeouts. So the Giants are going back to the World Series. They're facing a team that they weren't, that wasn't really supposed to be there. The Kansas City Royals had won all eight of their postseason games going into the World Series, so they were a tad bit favored going into the series. But the Giants gave them a rude awakening in game one with three first inning runs and Bumgarner of course shuts it down uh seven innings pitch three hits one walk and five k's uh Hunter Pence goes two for three with two walks a home run and two RBIs the Giants end up winning the game seven to one uh game two a bit of a tight game until a five-run sixth from the Royals uh erupts the score and the Royals win seven seven to two and game three uh not, not the most exciting game, but a 3-2 loss for San Francisco, down 2-1 in the series, kind of a pitcher's duel. Uh, and in game four, uh, the Giants fall behind 4-1, but they score one in the third, they score two in the fifth, and three in the sixth to extend the lead by four, uh, which they do in the seventh, and it ends up being a blowout, 11-4. Um, they scored 10 unanswered runs in that game. Game five, Bumgarner's on the hill, so you already know what's going to happen. Nine innings pitched, four hits, zero runs, zero walks, eight Ks, and 117 pitches. A CG shut piece, as Dallas Braden would call it. The first one in the World Series since Josh Beckett in 2003. I don't think anyone's done it since either. Brandon Crawford went two for four with three RBIs. The Giants win five to nothing. Uh, In game six, it was a bludgeoning. Uh, of the Giants. The Royals scored seven in the second, and Yordano Ventura, RIP, he shut it down. The Royals won 10 to nothing. So it comes down to game seven. This is best it. two this words in season. sports. The best two words in all of sports. The Giants load the bases with no one out and score two runs on two sacrifice flies. First from Mike Morris, second from Brandon Crawford. They take a 2 nothing game seven lead. The Royals answer back with Alex Gordon hitting a double that drives in Billy Butler from first. Gordon moved to third on a Moustakis flyout and was driven in by Omar Infante on a sack fly. 2-2. Uh, Tim Hudson was starting this game. He was taken out after Alcides Escobar hit a single. He pitched uh, one and two-thirds innings. The Giants brought in Jeremy Effeld, who pitched 2.1 scoreless innings. Uh, highlighted in this uh, sequence was a ridiculous double play turned from Joe Panic to Brandon Crawford, to Brandon Belt. And I believe this is also the first replay in World Series history. Yeah, it was the first first, uh, first year of replay. It was. And, uh, yeah, it had, to, it had to be reviewed. Took seven games.
and they call him out. Bruce Bochy with a with a just about as electric a reaction as you're ever going to see from a manager after a correct replay call on their side. Yeah, and thank God that was re- that was uh, reviewed. Yeah, that was a fantastic play. So Sandoval and Pence hit uh, leadoff singles in the fourth, respectively, and Jeremy Guthrie, who started the game, was taken out, and Morse drove in Sandoval to put the Giants ahead three to two. And after FL pitches in the fourth, what do the Giants do? Are they going to go to Petit? Are they going to go to Casilla? No, 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 no. Give me the horse. Madison Bumgarner is coming into the game in the fifth inning. He is putting the entire postseason that he had put together to that point on the line. He gives up one run and gives up the lead. It's all forgotten. It's all for nothing. On the heels of a 117 pitch, complete game. And he's two days rest. Two days rest. Two days rest. Two days rest. Up to this point, uh, Bumgarner in the whole postseason had a 1-1-3 ERA and 47 and two-thirds innings pitched. Uh, it was him versus Kelvin Herrera, Wade Davis, and Greg Holland, who had combined to have a 1.23 ERA in 36.1 innings pitched. And it was a relatively rocky start for Bumgarner. Uh, Omar Infante hit a single, and Alcides Escobar bunted him over to second uh, after getting ahead 2 to nothing. Nori Aoki lined out to left uh, after getting ahead 2-1, to one, but Bumgarner finished the inning by striking out Lorenzo Cain. Fifth inning over. Herrera, Davis, and Holland uh, go a combined four scoreless innings around three brace runners, striking out six. Uh, from there on, Bumgarner retires 14th, str- 14th straight. Uh, from, that's from Escobar on. From Cain on, he got, from, he got to 0-2 or 1-2 on 10 straight batters. That's 10 straight batters he was well ahead on. And in the bottom of the ninth, strikes out Eric Hosmer. One out, two to go, and the Giants are champions. Gets Billy Butler to fly out. One more out, and Madison Baumgartner has secured the greatest postseason run in the history of starting pitching, unless maybe Bob Gibson. That might be the only one ahead of him. Two out, Alex Gordon at the plate. Let's see what he does. Let's see what happens with the Giants and the Royals. A little flare, a little base hit. Oh, what? No way. He would have been out so hard. He would have been out by 50 feet. Like there, <laughs> but there, to this day, people still argue Gordon should have went. There's no chance. If maybe like Lorenzo Cain was up, maybe, maybe send him. Not Alex Gordon. That's not the guy. Maybe if Dash from the Incredibles was up. Maybe, maybe if somehow Gerard Dyson hit that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how he would have hit that because he was not much of a hitter back then. He was kind of just a base stealer. But um, the script is flipped. The Giants are now under more pressure than they were. I mean, they were smooth sailing on Bumgarner. So now it comes up to Salvador Perez, the starting catcher who had already had a walk-off previously in the postseason. He, en- he ended the first postseason game with a walk-off. 
would he get the storybook ending and finish the last postseason game with a walk-off? Or does Bumgarner secure it? Let's see. And there it is. Madison Bumgarner carries the whole team to a championship. Insane. Best World Series performance uh, or best, best pitching World Series performance uh, we've ever seen. Without a doubt. I, I don't think we're ever going to see something like that again. Like, I mean, with the way bullpens are used, especially in the postseason now, you're not going to see another Bumgarner probably for a while, if ever. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you look at how, you know, what Garrett Cole might have done, but Garrett Cole wasn't throwing complete games. He didn't even uh, pitch game seven. Yeah, he, he wasn't yeah, he wasn't coming in in the ninth, never mind in the fifth inning. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't pitching complete games uh in the postseason ever. I, I don't did Cole have one complete game in the postseason? No. He had the, yeah, he had like the fifteen K game, but that was over eight innings, I think. Yeah, and Bumgarner had two of those and two days later after one of those complete games uh pitches five innings <laughs> yeah five shutout innings five shutout innings i think two Absurd. i think he had two base runners too uh yeah two base runners one yeah and he retired 14 straight in the middle insane so uh let's just get this out of the way madison Bumgarner won world series mvp it wasn't even close 21 innings pitched nine hits one rock one walk one run and 17 k's on the biggest stage. Uh, some offense. Pablo Sandoval hit 429 with a 10.02 OPS and four RBI in the fall classic. Hunter Pence, the yes, yes, yes guy, 444 average with a 1167 OPS, a home run, five RBIs. He also hits safely in all seven games, and seven of his 12 hits came with two strikes. Jeremy Effeld, one of the pitchers who pitched in game seven, five and a third innings pitch, three hits, zero, zero walks, and zero runs. Uh, Bumgarner had the best win probability added in World Series history uh, with less than 23 innings pitched. Chris believes, and I believe, it is the greatest World Series pitching performance in the last 110 years. Yeah, and I believe it is the greatest single World Series, single World Series performance in the last 110 years overall. I would, I would like to argue Barry Bonds had a 1994 OPS in, in uh, 2002. Yeah, uh, I guess winning winning team for sure. And uh, I've I've looked at the win probability added, and I went the only guy that was ahead of Bumgarner and win probability added. Bob Gibson. I thought was legitimately better and more impressive. I guess by my standards, was Christy Mathewson in 1905. He had <laughs> he had nine. Yeah, he had nine complete game shutouts. The third or, World Series ever. No, three, three complete game shutouts, nine innings. Three complete game shutouts, and I think all the shutouts had like five or less hits allowed. Insane. So that was, that was the last time I, I think anyone was 
ever better than Bumgarner pitching wise. And I believe it, it was the greatest single World Series performance uh, we've seen in the last 110 years. You know, you could debate, but it unquestionably. Yeah, it's something you're never going to see again. Uh, for the entire postseason, Santiago Casilla, seven and one, seven and one third innings pitch, two hits, three walks, zero runs, and seven Ks. Jeremy Affeld, eleven and two thirds innings pitched, five hits, two walks, and zero runs. Pablo Sandoval, before walking in free agency, uh, left his first Giants tenure with a good one, six three sixty six average with an eight eighty eight OPS. Hundred pence, a three thirty three four oh five four seventy. 875 slugging percentage, or I'm sorry, slash line throughout the whole postseason. Teams hit six home runs. The team as a whole hit six home runs in 17 games. Uh, only 10 of 58 uh, runs batted in were via the home run. And amazingly, they still actually clinched the World Series on a walk-off home run. Madison Bumgarner went 52 and two-thirds innings pitched, the most innings in one postseason. A 103 ERA, 407 OPS against, 28 hits, 48, 45 strikeouts, six walks, the second highest win probability added in the entire playoff run in MLB history. Chris, you have uh, one stat that you want to explain. Yeah, so this is a stat that was used for my high school team last year. It's an A3P. An A3P is, it stands for after three pitches. So it means after three pitches of the at-bat, you're either done with the at-bat uh, or you're ahead, you're ahead 0-2 and they fouled it off, or you're ahead 1-2. So the target goal for pretty much anybody is about 65%. You want to get, or 60, 60 to 65%. Yeah, about two-thirds of that. So an A3P, the goal of getting an A3P is you want to put pressure on the hitter. If you're ahead 1-2, that puts them in a very vulnerable spot. And Madison Bumgarner was able to do that exceptionally. In the entire postseason, he had an 81.1% A3P rate, a 81.1% successful A3P rate. And in a single game, that rate did not get below 75%. Mind you, the target is about 65%. I mean, there's no data on like fan graphs or baseball reference or anything like that. I think that's something maybe they should do because it's it really measures the efficiency of uh of pitchers because you know getting down two one three one it's really going to mess with you Bumgarner was having none of that four out of his five batters uh he was getting ahead of or the at bat was over and obviously you know he was getting those guys out as well that's right so this team their legacy was that they were just the epitome of getting it done no matter how you know, they're, they're definitely not any similar to the current uh, championship teams where it's like they live off the home run ball, the strikeouts. Uh, I mean, like Chris said, they only had six home runs uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in 17 postseason games and only 10 of their RBIs came on home runs. But what I look at is they show that an entire team can just be carried by one man. That's what they did. As long as everyone else is competent, they can let that one guy in Madison Bobbengarner just completely take over and do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Yeah, I mean, I'd actually, this would be a good thing to look at, but I'm wondering what percentage of the playoff innings uh, did did Bumgarner pitch for the Giants? I'd imagine it's like 
I want, I want to hear the World Series innings. I feel like that one would be, like, even more impressive. So, yeah, I'm going to look up. But, yeah. While Chris is looking that up, I will just dive into this team more. Uh, they were not that dominant in any fashion. In fact, they were 13th in the NL in Ks per nine. Uh, they only had – obviously, they only had six home runs in, in 17 playoff games. And they used experience as their advantage. Uh, you know, they were very good when behind or under pressure. And they just didn't let the moment uh, get the best of them. Like, they always stayed calm, cool, and collective. And they made it happen when they needed to. And obviously, you know, when things got tough, they were able to ride that horse uh, to the finish line. And, I mean, Bumgarner just completely took this team, put them on his back, and, and brought them to the promised land. Like, you'll, like it's in a way that you're never going to see again. Uh, Chris, how's that research going? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll just add before I – you know, get the, get the stat. Like, I mean, yeah. One thing I, I really saw that was that one thing that I observed was like, they were a very, very relaxed team. They used experience to their advantage. They were never really rattled by any situation. They got down, you know, in game three of the uh, game four of the national league championship series, mm-hmm. they're down uh, four to one, they come back. Same thing in game four of the Nat of the uh, World Series. Uh, in the World Series, game four, they're down in the series two games to one, and then they're down in the game four to one, and they score ten unanswered runs. They were resilient, and they didn't they didn't really they didn't get too down. They didn't get too up. They played the game the right way, and mm-hmm. you know Madison Bumgarner was the ultimate example of that. He showed zero emotion in any of the innings he pitched. And uh, he pitched 21 out of the 61 innings in the, in the World Series. So Dang. about 34%. I don't know. Crazy. 21. And the Royals could never hit him. Like, at some point, you got to think at some point in those, in those 21 innings, they're going to figure him out. But no. Yeah. I mean, he, like, and I'd love to go into how he pit like, Bumgar, it, it's so impressive what he was able to do. Like, he had three pitches. He had fastball, cutter, and curveball. He didn't have a changeup. He didn't have a splitter. Um, he just – it was fastball, cutter, curveball. And it was him being able to get, to get ahead of guys. It was him able to, to make guys uncomfortable both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. You know, he was able to bust guys in with that fastball, bust guys in with that cutter – and really make them physically uncomfortable. And then when you're down 0-2, when you're down 1-2, literally 81% of the time, when you're down 0-2 or 1-2 or the at-bat is over, you're very uncomfortable mentally. You're going to swing at some pitches that you're probably not going to like, and you're probably going to get out. I think there were a lot of pitches by Bumgarner with two strikes that were outs that were not strikeouts, you know, fly out yeah. to ground outs because, you know, they were swinging at a – a fastball that was six inches outside or they were swinging at a curveball that was three inches inside and they popped it up. It was a, it was a great display of pitching. And it's not even like he was striking out everyone either. He had less than a strikeout per inning and he was, you know, the ultimate example of pitch to contact. You know, he wasn't quite like a Greg Maddox. He still used kind of power to his advantage, but he didn't use it in the, for swings he had a good mix of both for like when he need like when he needed that 97 mile an hour heater he used it but also when he could sit back on the off speed and let it do its work let the defense do what they did he was able to do that too yeah he 
he used power to his advantage by making the hitters uncomfortable, but he didn't, it wasn't like guys were, were whiffing. He was probably topping out, you know, 94, 95, which is very good. Um, but it's not something that's spectacular, especially by today's standards, but he was still, you know, guys just could never figure him out in those fifth, you know, he had the most innings in a, po- in a postseason run in MLB history, and they could never figure him out. They just never could. So uh, that is it for the 2014 Giants. You'll never see a better pitching performance in the postseason ever again. Never. Uh, mark my words. Chris, it is time for our favorite part of the show. I believe I picked first. Or no, you picked first last time, so I believe it's my turn. Yeah, I should explain the situation first. At tri- by tradition, we never explain it. At, at no, the it's always now. It's always now. Uh, we're going history-based uh, for this podcast. We've, you know, we've we've had a radio show. I, you know, if if you're a listener and you and you're noticing, you know, this is our seventh episode on you know YouTube and Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts, but. It's our 36th overall. We used to just talk about MLB news, but because there's really no MLB news now, we've decided to pick 30 players and 30 teams we want to talk about. I've listed 30 players, um, randomized the numbers, assigned a number to each player. Daniel will pick a number between – it used to be 1 and 30, and now because we've uh, done a few players, now it's 1 through 25. Uh, Daniel has picked 30 teams. Uh, that he that he wants to talk about that we want to talk about um and i will pick a number one through 25 uh because we've done you know we've done this is our this is going to be our seventh team now so it's one through 25 and uh whatever number i pick which is assigned to that team that's going to be the team we're talking about whatever number he picks whatever player is assigned to that number uh we're going to be talking about that player you know no themes just pure randomness pure randomness with this stuff so uh you are picking first i believe i am all right go ahead go with player number 19 number 19 we're going with the same era the it it is willie mickey mantle and the duke Ah. mickey mantle our first yankee yeah, I mean, this is where we become a non-biased baseball show. Yeah, we are Red Sox fans, but we acknowledge that a lot of baseball history was made by Yankees, and Mickey Mantle right. was one of the great Yankees. He's not talking about the Yankees; is simply ignoring history, and that's not where we're here for. Yeah, yeah, and well, you know, and I wasn't even alive during that time, so I had no hate for, hatred for them at the time. You know, Mickey Mantle, and he was, he was a big part of baseball culture as well. Willie Mickey and the Duke. That's. He's part of that song. That's not the only. That's not the only song he's a. He's a part of because he's. Uh, he makes a little cameo in the lyrics of of Billy Joel's "We Didn't Start the Fire." Right, right. He's in he's the lyrics somewhere, inundated. like in the middle of the song. Yeah, one of those guys that was inundated in New York culture, American culture, and baseball culture. He that's was, right. Like even though Willie Mays was better, he was probably like the face of baseball at the time. All right, Chris. Now it is your turn, number one through twenty-five. So. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with number five. Okay, we are. We are. We are gonna stay on our streak of World Series champions. 
And, you know, I think it's fitting as Red Sox fans, we're going to talk about a Yankees team. We're going to balance that out and talk about a team that broke the Yankees' heart, the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks. Hey, there we go. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't be too pro-Yankees. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, – yeah, and, hey, Madison Bumgarner had the uh, second highest win probability added in a postseason run. Is Randy the only Johnson man above one? him – was Kurt Schilling in 2001. Kurt Schilling, okay. Fair enough. Kurt Schilling had 2.1 win probability added in the 2001 stretch. And he was definitely better than Bumgarner, which is absurd to think about. So I'm really excited to talk about that. All right. Well, it's going to be a good one. Mickey yeah. Mantle and the 01 Diamondbacks. Mickey Mantle and the 01 Diamondbacks. Yeah, this is going to be fun. 01 Diamondbacks is a good one. And then Mickey Mantle... There's going to be a lot to talk about. I, I bet there's a lot of good quotes about him. Oh, for sure. I bet I bet there's some video of him. Him and Willie Mays actually had a, a home run derby that, uh, you know, I forgot to show. I didn't include it in the prep sheet. Oh, we could do it next week then. We could do it next week because, you know, it, it's right on topic. So that was the show to be named later. I hope you all enjoyed uh, our episode about Willie Mays and the 2014 Giants. Uh, if you want, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you want to see all the videos, if you're listening on just Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, and you want to see the videos we're looking at, go to our YouTube channel, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, it is STBNL with Chris Gianta and Daniel Curran. That's right. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it is at Chris underscore Gianta. If you want to follow Daniel on Twitter, it is at Daniel underscore Curran. And we will see you next week for our episode on Mickey Mantle and the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks. See you next week.